Well, good morning. And good morning to everybody watching online and watching in traditions this morning. I'm excited to get back into our series on the seven churches uh, in Revelation and what Jesus is speaking to his church, to us and all churches and all times and all cultures and all generations. Um, the Lord is speaking to us. But I also want to just say thank you. Uh, last Sunday night, we just had an awesome, another awesome family celebration, annual business meeting. And I'll just tell you what, that's not just um, the fruit of good leadership. That's the fruit of healthy family. And, you know, that a healthy family is never a perfect family. You know, we don't have to be perfect, but we're continuing to pursue growth and health and those types of things that bring flourishing in our own lives, in our community. And uh, last Sunday, it was a special time. It was a worshipful time. I walked away just saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you. What a blessing to be a part of this church and what God's doing in our community and the world. So I just want to say thank you. Um, from a pastor to a congregation, thank you for that. Um, this morning, we're gonna we're gonna get into the word and hear some words from Jesus to a congregation. And I want to remind you that each one of these churches is going through different situations that represent what churches go through in different seasons of history and different seasons of their own life as a church. And um, most of the churches focus not on just some good things that they do, but focus on some things that Jesus is like, hey, if you're not careful, you're gonna veer off course. If you're not careful, um, you're going to get off track and you're not going to end up being victorious. Jesus speaks to all the churches saying, hey, um, if you want to be victorious in this broken and difficult world, this is how you do that. This is how you win at life through the kingdom of God. This is how you will be victorious at the end of it all. And he's going to speak to the church this morning. The church we're going to be talking about is Thyatira, another church in another town in Asia, Asia Minor. And so you can get ready to look at Revelation chapter 2. But as you do that, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been fooled by someone or something that you thought was going to be good for you and it actually brought damage in your life, right? And if you're like, no, that is not me. I've never been fooled. Then I hate to tell you this. You are being fooled. You just don't know who's fooling you yet. You don't know what, what lie you've bought into yet because that happens to all of us, right? That in this world, so much of health versus a lack of health is determined by whether we're living according to something that is true or something that is not true, right? There, there um, are appetites in me that tell me certain foods are good for me and they feel really good to me in the moment, but I have been told over and over that the truth is eventually they will kill me. And so I fight this battle on a daily basis to try to make the right choices with what I eat, right? And we know that certain things in entertainment and certain amounts of screen time and all those kinds of things can be not that great for us. And yet we all wrestle with how much entertainment do we absorb on a, on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis. And, you know, we've all had experiences with people that we trusted and we thought that they were going to, to bring good things into our life. We thought they were going to meet certain needs in our life. And, and yet we found out later that they were not what they appeared to be. As I was preparing this message, I thought back to a season as a young Christian. I, I had gotten saved right at the end of high school, came to know Jesus, and felt like I was supposed to go into the ministry and change my career plans and, and uh, go into the ministry. I had no idea what that meant. And I, I felt like, man, I better go to Bible college because if I'm going to be in ministry, I should probably understand this. 
And I had read the Bible enough to know that there was a lot in it. I had no idea what God was talking about. And some of you who have been laboring through our Bible reading plan, I just want you to know you're in the Pentateuch. You're in the first five books of the Bible. There's some dry spots, but you're going to get to Joshua and Samuel and some of the stories and that kind of stuff. You'll make it, okay? But I remember as a young Christian being like, I don't, God, I don't know what you're talking about. How can I lead other people? And so I went to Bible college and Bible college is a dangerous place if you don't know the Bible super well, because a lot of people there know the Bible really well and they know how to use it either for good or for harm. And I met a couple of friends, friends along the way that um, knew a lot more about the Bible than I did. And as I was wrestling through leaving some parts of my life that as I became a Christian, I was feeling convicted about, I was recognizing, man, the way I've handled relationships with women in the past, not the best thing. Some of the things I've consumed in entertainment, not the best thing for me. Some of my uh, experiences with different substances, not God's best for me. And, and so as I was wrestling to get away from those things, I met these two uh, friends of mine that were more mature Christians. I found out later, maturity doesn't always equal how long you've known Jesus or how long you've been reading the Bible. It's measured by how obedient you are to Jesus. But in that, in that season where I was wrestling to get free of some of those things, but still very tempted by them, still used to those things filling, filling voids in my life, I remember them saying, Caleb, it's really not that big of a deal. Like you, you love Jesus now, you know Jesus, you're, you're doing some of the Jesus-y stuff that you're supposed to do. And so Jesus, he died for those sins so you don't have to worry about him anymore. And I was like, well, that sounds a lot like the, gospel. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. He's like, and, and they would, they really emphasize Jesus's grace is sufficient for you. You don't have to worry about making those mistakes. In fact, Jesus is okay with that stuff. In fact, that's pretty normal, which by the way, anytime someone says it's okay, cause it's normal, that should always be like a red flag. It's usually not good. If it's normal, it sometimes is concerning. Not always, but sometimes. And, and so I, I wrestled, and because of their influence in my life, many of these things that Jesus had been setting me free from, I wrestled with longer in my life than I needed to. And, and actually, the fruit of, of that friendship and the fruit of their lives over the next couple of years kind of proved that they were moving a direction that was not where I felt Jesus was calling me to. And thankfully, there were a lot more really good influences there in that setting in Bible college that were saying, no, there's a difference, Caleb, between cheap grace, as, as uh, the German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, grace that we take advantage of versus grace that enables us to live the way God called us to live. But in that, that early on time at Bible college, I was fooled into thinking some things were okay in my life, that Jesus was saying, Caleb, they're not okay and they're actually extremely damaging to you. And that's very similar to what Jesus is going to say to the church at Thyatira this morning. And probably if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, he usually doesn't wait too long to say, hey, that's not good for you. You need to stop that. And we need to fill that void in your heart with something better. And so let's look at this letter starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus addresses the church this way. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Do any of you sign your emails that way? 
pretty unique, right? Like my feet are really shiny and my eyes are scary like they're on fire, right? Like what is Jesus talking about here? If you if you read uh, through Revelation chapter one, when we studied that a few weeks ago, you'll remember those same two images are used to describe Jesus there. And they mean something. They, they have prophetic meaning. They're traced back to some Old Testament pictures of angels and of God himself. And Jesus, I want you to notice, Jesus introduces himself here as the son of God. Now, often when we think about Jesus, we think about earthly Jesus, which is Jesus, but it was Jesus without many of his divine qualities. And Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man. He was living more out of his humanity side than out of his divine side, if you will. And and here he says, this is Jesus, the son of God. This is divine Jesus, Jesus who always was, who always is, and who always will be right beside the Father on the throne of heaven. This is the royal king of heaven. And he says, and his eyes are like flames of fire. And this image of eyes like flames of fire, it's eyes like a smelting furnace. And you're like, what is a smelting furnace? It has nothing to do with smelling anything. But A smelting furnace was to refine precious metals and the furnace would burn hot enough that it would literally burn out anything that was not precious metal. The precious metals, the silver, the gold would outlast the flames, but anything else in there that was an impurity would be burned out. And so when Jesus says, I have eyes like flames of fire, he's saying, I'm the one who's going to see the difference between what is good and lasting and valuable and what is wasted. And this was a picture throughout the Old Testament of God's judgment, that God's judgment is not just about destroying everything and ruining everything and punishing everything. God's judgment is about getting rid of the, of the bad stuff and leaving only what is good left over. God's judgment is about refining and removing everything that would take away from the beauty that God intended in our lives and in creation. Removing all of that stuff and leaving what he always intended to be there, the beauty and the strength and the integrity that he meant for that. And so Jesus' eyes like flames of fire are a symbol of his authority and his role as the judge of all creation. Now, we don't like the idea of somebody telling us what's going to happen with our lives. We don't like the idea of somebody telling us, you know, that's wrong, it's not okay, and you're going to be punished for it. In fact, you know, we, we also know that we have a picture in our heads of what it's like to be called before a judge in a court of law. And we know that in that moment, that judge has the authority to say what will happen with us, whether we will be punished, what the level of that punishment will be. And often you hear, man, I hope that the judge has my interests in favor. Man, I wonder how the jury will will lean on this thing. And though we strive, we strive for unbiased judges and unbiased juries and all those kinds of things, we, we do know that human nature has natural bias to it. But that's why Jesus says, hey, I want you to know that I'm the one with feet of burnished bronze. And the feet were a symbol of someone's cleanliness, of someone's purity throughout scripture. And when Jesus says, I have feet like burnished bronze, he's saying that I am someone who is pure. I have no uh, agenda. I have no false motives. I only want what is good, what is best. I, there is nothing in me that is evil. 
And so Jesus is saying, yeah, I have the authority to judge, but I'm also the best possible person to judge. You wouldn't want any other judge. He's the one who sees everything clearly. He's not going to miss a detail. And he's the one that judges without any unhealthy bias. And so it's important for us to understand this is how Jesus is approaching the church at Thyatira. And at times Jesus comes to us and he says, hey, I um, am the God that saved you. I am the God that went to the cross for you. That's important for us to keep in balance with Jesus's judgment, that Jesus received judgment on our behalf. But he also says, and I am the judge who's gonna assess your life and I wanna lead you towards purity. I wanna lead you towards beauty. And we're going to need to do some refining work to get there. And so Jesus approaches us through grace. He always approaches us through grace, but he is also the ultimate judge. And we need to remember that Jesus is the ultimate judge. We are accountable to him for every word, every thought, every action. And when we think about some of the, some of the seemingly meaningless moments and things of our life, we need to remember we're, we're accountable to Jesus for every second that we live. We're accountable to Jesus for every breath that we breathe. We're accountable to Jesus for how we use the gifts and the talents and the passions and the skills that we have in life. And if you don't know Jesus, that's a very intimidating idea. If you do know Jesus, you've begun to taste that everything he has for you is the absolute best for you. And that's what the church at Thyatira knew. Now he goes on and he gives them some affirmations. He says in verse 19, he says, I know all the things that you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. Now, these are some of the things that he's been encouraging the other churches. Hey, you need to do more of this. You need to live out your faith. You need to serve other people. You need to be that lampstand. Remember that image of light shining in darkness. And to the church at Thyatira, he says, you're doing it. You're doing a great job. And he says, you're even growing in these things. You're not just settling for, okay, we've kind of checked that box. You're growing more and more in these things. And so he sees in front of him a flourishing church. They're on mission. They're devoted to him. They're serving together in community and they're growing. So they're a flourishing church. But, and here's the the main weight of this church's letter. We all know that you can do most things right. You can do most things right, but tolerating something wrong can destroy it all. Have you noticed that? In life, that's true. You can do most of your job right, but if you do a couple of the wrong things wrong, your boss won't focus so much on all the other things you did right, will they? You know, you can do most of marriage right, but if you make a couple of significant mistakes, it can kind of destroy everything else. And, and many of us have, have experienced that, and, and some of us, it has cost us our marriages. Thankfully, with Jesus, there's always healing and restoration, right? I've found that in a lot of things in life, I can do most things right, but when I tolerate some wrong things, it's the beginning of, of the end of the goodness of those things. And that's what's happening here. We'll read on in verse 20 and see what's being tolerated. In verse 20, he says, I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. 
So the complaint that Jesus has against the church is that there is this woman here who, who is, claims to be a prophet. She's a teacher in the church. And she, uh, he likens her to the Old Testament image of Jezebel. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Susie preached to us about the church at Pergamum, that in order to give them a picture of the seriousness of the situation, Jesus compared the false teachers they were following to Balaam, to an evil prophet in the Old Testament that, that was leading the people into similar sins. Now here he does the same thing again. He says, I don't know if you realize how serious this is. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw down kind of the evil ace card here and throw down the name Jezebel because this is the same as that was. And all of the people, these new Christians, these, this church that had read the old Testament, they recognized the name Jezebel because she was the single most evil woman in all of the old Testament scriptures. There were a lot of good ones, a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of good prophetesses, a lot of good female leaders, but Jezebel was the queen of Israel and was single-handedly responsible for leading the entire nation astray into idolatry. And that idolatry was really founded on two things. One, she led the nation of Israel to worship the, the false god Baal, because Baal was the most popular god of the nations surrounding Israel. And many of the, the leaders in Israel wanted recognition from surrounding nations and thought if they could get their nation to adopt the same god, they would be recognized and valued and, and accepted as one of those surrounding nations. So social benefit was motivating idolatry in that situation. The other thing that Jezebel did is she introduced worship of Asherah, which was um, supposed to be a female goddess. And this, this goddess Asherah was worshiped through sexual immorality. It was, there was use of temple prostitutes and it encouraged sexual immorality. And so in, in both cases, both this worship of Baal and this worship of Asherah, Jezebel was leading the people of Israel into both immorality and idolatry for selfish benefit. And Jesus is saying, you have someone just like that in your church. You have someone just like that who's, who's leading my servants astray. And the sin that he's, he's addressing here is not specifically, or first and foremost, he's not addressing the immorality and the idolatry. Notice what he says his complaint is against the church at Thyatira. He says, you're permitting it. We'll see as we read on, not all were participating, not all were engaging in the false teaching, but he says, my complaint against you is this, you are permitting that woman to teach those things to my servants and lead them astray. And I want you to understand this morning that the sin of the church was tolerating lies in the midst of the truth. They were a healthy church. They were a missional church. They were, they were a faithful church, but they were tolerating something very unhealthy in the midst of it. They were tolerating some serious lies in the midst of the healthy ministry that they were doing. And that's a problem because scripture shows us that the lies you believe always lead you to sin. Lies are not harmless. The lies that we believe always lead us to sin. And when I look at the different mistakes, and especially the major mistakes I've made in my life, I look back and it always started somewhere where I believed the lie. I believed, oh, this is going to make me happier than if I do this. I believed, oh, this is what's best 
for me. That's often the start of a lie is that we think we know what is best rather than trusting that God knows what's best. Interestingly, that's the foundation of the first lie that was ever told in the Garden of Eden. And it's at the root of every other lie that is told to human beings is, hey, it's, it's easy to fool us. The enemy knows how to fool us. We know how to fool each other. If we can get, if we can get someone to believe that something is best for them, they will do it. We are inherently selfish. And the invitation of faith is to believe that what God says is best for us is better than what our instincts or our culture or our upbringing say is best for us. And so the lies that we believe always lead us to sin. Now, why would as a church community or why as individuals do we sometimes permit these lies and tolerate these lies? The the problem here is not that they all believe the lies. Some of them know it's not true, but they're kind of letting it happen. They're okay with it. they're, they're, They're not crushing out this lie or correcting this lie or saying something's wrong here. Why do we do that? It's because we all in some way, shape or form prefer the immediacy of personal pleasure over the satisfaction of healthy relationships. We prefer it. If we're not careful, we always choose 100% of the time. If we're not careful, we will choose immediate personal pleasure over long-term satisfying healthy relationships. And you might be like, Caleb, what's the connection here between this personal pleasure and the relationships? Sin, by definition, is always damaging our relationship with God and or our relationship with other people and or our relationship with ourselves, which the great commandments say that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're supposed to love our neighbors. How? As we love ourselves. When we don't love those three categories in life the way God intended, we are in sin. We are damaging relationships and we're pursuing sin at the same time. But as human beings with sinful natures, with selfish natures, we tend to pursue those things. And often those lies also come under the guise of something that is very good. Sexual immorality, food offered to idols, these kinds of things, the social acceptance that would have come. And we've talked about this before, but in this culture, there were often feasts dedicated to these other gods and to be a part of the normal social circles. In fact, to do business successfully in Asia Minor, you had to engage in idolatrous worship at these feasts. It was the ultimate business networking, right? And so there was a social component to this sin of eating food, sacrificed to idols. By the way, what's the most significant worshipful act Christians participate in since the history of Christianity? It's eating a meal. It's communion. We recognize and worship Jesus through the eating of a meal. It's no secret that often idols are worshiped with counterfeit versions of how God is meant to be worshiped. Right? So they were wanting social acceptance. They were wanting sexual pleasure and they were wanting economic benefit. We've talked about all those things. And those are all rooted in God given desires sex and food and money and community. Those are all God given desires. But it's when we believe a lie as to how they are meant to be satisfied that we end up walking down the wrong road. 
rather than trusting God in the context and the timeline of healthy relationships, healthy community, healthy provision from God, that we trust him to satisfy our God-given desires. You know, those buddies I had in college that weren't such good buddies, they'd often say, Caleb, God gave you that desire. Caleb, God, God wanted that for you. And you know what? They were right, except in how God wanted it for me. Because God has a right way and a right timeline to satisfy our longings. Some of our longings will not be satisfied in this life, but will be more than satisfied throughout eternity. But God has a good plan to satisfy those desires. And the problem was that when they, when they indulged in those for selfish pleasure, just like when we indulge in things for selfish pleasure, it begins to destroy us from the inside out, right? It begins to destroy everything we want. And that is when pleasure moves to immorality. You know, the church has been guilty in different seasons of time of calling all pleasure sin, right? Not all good things are sin. When pleasure is exercised out of self-interest rather than received as a gift from God in his context, in his ways, that's when it moves to immorality. That's when pleasure moves to sin. When pleasure is part of something you've received from God, for instance, when sex comes in the context of a biblical marriage, right? When finances and wealth comes in the context of a, of a job that has been worked with integrity and healthy relationships and is not damaging to all of the people around you. Those types of things, sex and money are blessings from God in the right context. But when we take those things for ourselves and we want them and we're willing to trample anything and anyone to get them, that is when they have moved into clear immorality. Those are extreme examples, but the same can happen with our desire for entertainment. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the beauty of the world and the creativity of humanity but we can indulge ourselves in those things and pleasure moves to immorality. And it's easy sometimes to wonder why is immorality an issue? Like why are there so many no's? Like why does God have so many rules? What, what's, what is the problem here? Does God just want to box us in on all these things? Moral versus immoral. But the reality is, is that our immoral choices are actually idolatry. We like to say, if it's not hurting anyone, then how bad could it be? Have you ever heard that? It's not hurting anybody, so what's the big deal? We often don't include God in that equation. Because when we use our lives and our God-given desires to make immoral choices, even if, and this is rare that this is actually true, even if it doesn't hurt anybody around you or hurt you, immorality is a form of idolatry. Notice that both in Jezebel's case in the Old Testament and in this church at Thyatira, that indulging in these social feasts and indulging in sexual immorality, though they were physical symptoms of immorality, they were symptoms of the, of the deeper problem of idolatry. That while they were satisfying their sinful nature, they were also worshiping other Gods In Jezebel's time, they were worshiping Baal and Asherah, which if you study the scriptures closely, were not only just dead statues, there were demonic forces behind those gods, right? There is a spiritual reality that we live in that we often don't see. And in this case, this woman at Thyatira was teaching them to indulge their selfish interests, but to the glory of other gods, to the Greek and Roman gods. 
And God's saying, you're destroying yourselves, you're destroying your community, and you're damaging relationship with me and you. And so we can't separate the two things. When we look at sin in our lives, we often say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, Jesus died so that I don't have to worry about this. I don't know why he had to die. That seems like a big deal for this little sin. But what we don't realize is that our immoral or sinful choices are like injecting poison into someone we love. We don't realize that that our relationships with people and our relationships with God are, are described in scripture as like a living symbiosis. And when we sin, we inject poison into that symbiotic relationship. That's why the Bible makes a big deal out of sin and immorality. That's why throughout history, when church, churches have been healthy and Christians have been healthy, though they have incredible compassion and grace for the sinful, they also take sin very seriously and don't permit it and tolerate it and say, not that big of a deal. And that's what Jesus is calling the church at Thyatira back to, is that they would recognize that their immorality is actually idolatry and that them permitting these things in their midst, even if they're not participating, is actually allowing poison into their spiritual ecosystem. And we have to recognize the same thing today. The word of God to his church, both in Thyatira and to us and to every generation is don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into thinking it's not a big deal. Don't be fooled into wasting your life. Don't be fooled into bringing poison into your relationships. Don't be fooled. Instead, be aware of what is leading you. Be aware of what's leading you away from God and what it's leading you towards. It's always leading us. Our immorality always separates us from God and leads us towards idolatry, leads us towards the worship of something else. And you, can, you had better believe that, yes, there is a spiritual presence of self-indulgence. There is a spiritual presence of sexual immorality. There is a spiritual presence behind substance abuses that when we indulge those things, we are not only rejecting God, we are worshiping other things. You could say, Caleb, wow, that really stretches my theology. And I, and I don't want to, you don't want to build too much of a, a huge structure around that. But that is the spiritual reality that the Bible speaks into. That there is a spiritual war that we are engaged in. We are not neutral. Our choices are not neutral. They mean something for us. They mean something for God. And we have to be aware of what those things are. Now, before I go on, I want to say, how are we aware? Because right now, if you're like me, you're now like super self-analyzing and you're like, oh my gosh, there's like everything in my life is wrong. I, I know I'm not pleasing to God. I'm, what's going to happen to me? I just want to like, I, I want to say we need to take sin seriously, but we don't need to go on personal witch hunts through our lives and just say, okay, I know something has to be wrong with me. I need to root it out and get it out of there. That can be its own form of idolatry where we're worshiping the pursuit of sin rather than just focusing on pursuing Jesus. Here's the the test of idolatry. Is Jesus your number one desire? Are you pursuing Jesus above everything else? Are there moments where you're choosing things that you don't want to do out of obedience to Jesus? Those are tests of desire. 
And that should be something where you do self-evaluate. God, am I desiring you today? Am I, 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 I've found that, um, and I'll just, I'll just be honest, that entertainment is an area where I can really self-indulge. Right? How, how many of us could go home and we turn on Netflix or Disney, Disney Plus? I mean, watch all my old Disney favorites, you know? And we can, really, we can really indulge ourselves in harmless entertainment. But the damage that is done is that minutes, hours, days, how much of our life is given to just watching a screen? that I hate to say it accomplishes very little in our relationships with one another or with God. It's not to say that there isn't a place for it and a time for it, but there needs to be a limit on it. I've gotten to a place where sometimes if I'm wondering if I've had a, had a little too much uh, entertainment, I'll, some, I'll check in with the Lord. I'll be like, Lord, is this something, you know, how do you want me to use this time? How do you want me to use this time? And I really, you know, often in that moment, I either feel a peace like, Hey, this, yeah, this is a good time to, to chill out and unwind. And sometimes I feel a, a, a prompting. There's something else I need to be doing with this time. So it's not making everything sin, but it's also not justifying everything as okay. We actually have to be discerning and walk in an attentive relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is what God wants with us. And it's actually what's most satisfying. The other thing is, if you're not reading this, if you're not in this, This is the number one way that the Holy Spirit speaks to you in areas that are confusing. This is the number one way when the the enemy has lied to you and you've believed a lie. This is the number one way that God breaks through the lies and shines light on things that he's like, this is not good for you. Stop believing this. And so we look to the word and we look to the Holy Spirit to help us see through. And and then we get one of two responses from Jesus. And Jesus ends this letter with two kind of extensive and intense responses. And I want you to see how Jesus is going to handle this situation. The first one is this in verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Notice that. Despite all the damage this woman is doing to Jesus' bride, to his children, leading his servants astray. He says, I gave her time to repent. But she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Jesus gives us all time to repent. And that time determines whether we want, whether we actually want to turn from our immorality or whether we love our immorality more than we love God. We all make mistakes. We're all gonna slip into some different things. And Jesus is going to call us back to himself. And when he does, our response will show where our heart was all along. She doesn't want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. This is kind of a wordplay because she was luring other people into bed. He's saying, I'm going to throw her on a bed that will bring suffering. A bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her that's spiritual adultery, not just sexual adultery, will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. They have a chance to turn back too. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Now, if you're walking closely with Jesus, those are not threatening words. But if you're like me and every now and then you slip into kind of distant relationship with Jesus, 
Those are scary words. I want to explain there too. He says, there's going to be suffering for her because she won't repent. For anyone else that's following her, that's committing spiritual adultery with her, they also will suffer if they don't repent. And he says, and I will strike her children dead. Likely that is also a spiritual reference that there are the children of God. And then the Bible is clear that children who follow false teachers are actually children of the devil. And so when he's saying, I'll strike her children dead, those that won't repent, those that are committed to her teaching, those that are like, no, we're, we're choosing this gospel. We're following this way. He's like, I'm going to strike them dead. Does this sound like Jesus? Not the Jesus that we often preach. But when you read all of scripture, you recognize that God is coming in to rescue sinners out of a world in spiritual war. And he fights to protect his children. He fights to protect his church. He cares deeply for his children. And he's willing to go to great lengths. Now, does it mean it's immediate? Does it mean it's without grace, without mercy? Not at all. Every step of the way, he's saying, I want repentance. I want people to turn back to grace. But if they refuse, there is punishment. And he says, I see every thought and every motive. And I will give everyone what they deserve. And I think that sometimes these types of truths, I'll tell you what, it's not, this was not an exciting one for me to like, yes, Jesus, I'm going to tell them about how you make people suffer. No, this is not the fun stuff to talk about, which is why we don't talk about it or think about it. But the reality is that we serve an incredibly powerful and beautiful and perfect God who, by the way, owns all of this. It was his idea. He created it. He put it together. He has a plan for it. And everything that we do that rejects his plan deserves to be punished. He's the rightful authority here. And we can question that all we want to. There are moments, um, my children really love me a lot. You're like, are you serious or joking? No, I think they really do. I mean, they tell me they do. But I'm sure there are moments they wish I wasn't the one making decisions. I'm sure there are moments that they were hoping for a yes and I said no. And we as God's children have those same moments, but we have to recognize that he is our father and he has authority that we are meant to live underneath. And it's with that authority that Jesus punishes perfectly because he knows every thought and motive. He knows every thought and motive, which means he knows when you slipped into sin, but your heart really longs for him. And he knows when you have claimed to be his follower, but you really long for self-indulgence more than for him. He knows. I don't know. I don't have flame, flaming eyes that can see right through your heart. I don't, you know, we don't have that with each other, but Jesus does. He says, I'm not going to make any mistakes. I'm not going to punish someone unjustly. I'm not going to punish someone accidentally and later be like, oops, I missed on that one. No, he says, I know exactly where it's at. And there's still time to make a decision. And then he says, there is another option, by the way. He says this in the final verses. He says, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. 
I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. That's a spiritual legacy. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. To them, I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. He's quoting a prophecy from Psalm 2 there. Verse 28, they will have the same authority I received from my father and I will also give them the morning star. That's another prophetic image of a light that cannot be darkened. It will always shine in the darkness. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. I want to ask the worship team to come up in this venue and traditions. I want to ask the piano player to go to the piano. In a moment, we're going to reflect. But what Jesus says here is these things that you haven't given into, but you're permitting. These are not just um, deeper truths that are in competition. This is not just an ideological controversy. This is not just about philosophies or any of those kinds of things. This is actually about, do you believe Satan or do you believe Jesus? Which one do you believe? It says, these are not deeper truths that some person came up with. These are the truths that Satan is calling you to believe in, the, the loyalty that he is calling you towards. And he says, all you need to do is hold to the truth of Jesus throughout whatever you face, whatever you're told, whatever you have done, whatever mistakes you've made in the past, that you cling to Jesus and it will be good enough in the end, that Jesus will save you. And not only will he save us, we, we settle for thinking that the best God has done for us is forgive us for our sins. God did not forgive you just so that you'd be like, thank you, Jesus, and move on with your life. Jesus forgave you and washed you clean of your sins so that you can live with purpose and destiny that will not end when you breathe your last, but it will live for eternity. And the beauty that you long for, the goodness that is inside of you is meant to exponentially increase for eternity. And he says, I don't just want to not punish you. I want to reward you. And what does he want to reward us with? Is he giving us some little, some little tip, some pittance for his slaves? No, he says, I want to share with you the authority that my father gave to me. Do you remember in Revelation 1, he says, I want you to be royal priests, people that minister my spirit with my royal authority. That the voice that said, come alive, and the globe came alive. That we will walk in that authority. That is the reward for those that are faithful to Jesus. Who say, no, I don't want sin. I don't want selfishness. I don't want personal pleasure. I don't want my agenda. I don't want to win my political argument or have my way. I want Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to know what it's like to sense God's presence in my workplace like I do in worship. I want Jesus. And he says, oh man, I, just, I don't want to just not punish you. I want to reward you. And it's simple what he says here. He says, just don't, don't buy in. Don't buy into those lies. Stick with the truth because Jesus rewards us when we reject the lies and walk in the truth. Jesus wants to reward you.
we fight with these two extreme views of Jesus, one that is all grace and there is no punishment for sin. What does that kind of God offer to those that are oppressed? If there's no punishment for sin, then there is no justice for the oppressed. But then the other extreme is we just think there's this angry God up there wanting to crush out every little sin. And if that's all he is, then why would he subject himself to the cross for us? Why does he patiently wait over and over and say, please repent because I have reward for you. I have good things for you. Don't settle for the things of the world and church this morning. I just want to say to you that our culture is a permissive culture. And I'm not using that word politically or, or socially or any of those things. I'm using that word spiritually, that we are a culture that says, yes, let's be a spiritual melting pot. Bring it all in. Jesus's grace is good enough. Coexist and all that nonsense. It doesn't work that way. There is only one true God. There is only one God that died for the sins of humanity. And there is only one God who wants to lift you to his level and share his authority with you. And his name is Jesus. He is worth putting aside every other desire, every other longing. There is nothing else in this world that can satisfy you. And I say that having tried quite a few of the different invitations. Nothing will satisfy you. And so I want to go into a moment of reflection and ask you to come to Jesus, the one who loves you, and to say, Jesus, is there anything holding me back from you? Jesus, is there anything I'm tolerating in my life that's not of you? I spent this weekend praying that question before I called you to pray. Jesus, is there any sin I'm tolerating in my life? And thankfully, at, at this point in my walk with Jesus, there's nothing, no massive course correction. That's, that happened earlier in my life. But there are, there are things, he's like, Caleb, you've let this creep into a place it's not supposed to be. You've let this desire get bigger than it's supposed to be. You've let this thing be your source of peace or of joy when I'm supposed to be that source. Are there things that Jesus wants to say to you? Hey, I have something better for you. I have reward for you. Don't settle for that. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we stand before you, the one who sees all things. You see all things. And Lord, right now, as we sit in your presence, would you show us what we can't see? Would you show us where we have believed lies? Would you show us where we've settled for something less? Would you lead us, Lord, out of the damage that our, our sins do and lead us into the reward that you have for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've asked the worship team to play through that song, Christ Be Magnified, one more time, because at the end of the day, it's not about avoiding sin. It's about making Jesus bigger in your life. Would you stand with me as we sing this song? And would you allow the Holy Spirit to use this song to show you where have you magnified something else? Where have you allowed something else to be bigger? And wherever that is, say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I confess it to you. Take it away. Jesus, wash me clean. Jesus, I replace, I want to replace it with you. Show me how. And Jesus will speak to you.
Let's make this song the cry of our hearts that Jesus would be magnified in every part of our lives.